Hi there, and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, we'll continue our coverage from Laval. Everyone was panicking, crying, uh, you know, in comprehension. Are the kids okay? Two young children are dead and six others injured after a bus drove into a daycare in the community north of Montreal. The driver is now facing homicide charges. We're live in Laval with the latest and the provincial MNA for the area. Christopher Skeet will be here as well. Then, buy American double down. We're going to buy American. We're going to buy American. U.S. President Joe Biden is promising even tougher new Buy American rules for major infrastructure projects. What does it mean for Canada? Is there another big trade fight with our neighbors on the horizon? We'll ask this country's ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman, coming up. Plus, ready to sign on the dotted line? We need certainty uh, moving forward, not just for a few years, five or ten years, but decades to come. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is set to meet with federal ministers tomorrow. Could Ontario be the first to agree to a health care funding deal? Our front bench panel is standing by to dig into that first, though. All Canadians are grieving with them and we'll do whatever we can to support them in their horrific pain through the coming days and months and years of, of grief. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau commenting on today's horrific and deadly bus crash in Laval, Quebec. Two children have died and six others are hurt after a bus driver drove his bus into a local daycare. The 51-year-old driver has been arrested and is facing charges of homicide and dangerous driving. Witnesses describe seeing the unimaginable. It was hysteric. I saw him when the police dragged him in the, the vehicle. His eye was like popping out, you know. And he was nude. He didn't have any pants. So uh, I, 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 I still can see his eyes. You know how hysteric he was. That man. A 51-year-old STL employee was arrested for dangerous driving and homicide. He is still being met by the police. The investigation is ongoing, and the motive remains unknown. We offer our our, our condolences to. Uh, the families. Uh, we want to say that the government will be there to uh, to support to support uh, these uh, these families. The Laval is there. Let's get the latest now from CTV National News's Quebec bureau chief Jean-Pierre Beauchemin. She joins us from Laval. Hi there. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, let's start with the victims, those who, uh, of course, who passed away from their injuries, but also who remain injured. What do we know at this point? Well, we now know that the two victims were four years old, one was about to be five years old, as a matter of fact. And in the last few minutes, we received information, the charge sheet from the prosecutor's office saying that, in fact, the suspect has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder and then counts of assaults and a serious aggravated assaults in some of the cases because we know that there were six other children who were injured. They were brought to hospital. Their lives were not considered to be in danger, but some of the injuries were very serious. The hospital said earlier today that one hospital in Montreal had received four of those children. Two were boys, two were girls. And as I say, they were conscious when they arrived at the hospital, but that their injuries were quite severe. And what about uh, that larger question of motive? And just to recap, you, you did deliver some news there that the 
The man is facing first-degree murder charges now in the death of those two children. But um, uh, the, the, the question of motive, which police all day have been saying, is, is at this point unanswered. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Absolutely. And they're still not saying exactly why this would have, have happened. What would be the motives? We've been hearing all day since we first got here this morning that everyone on the scene said that it was nearly impossible that this would have been something that was not intentional, just the way the lay of the land, just the way that the daycare is at the end of this cul-de-sac and you have to turn. And two witnesses who saw it happen, two people who were first on the scene, all the descriptions were saying, well, this doesn't seem like it's something that could have been an accident. It had to be deliberate. But that has yet to be proven. And police are not telling us any more information as to why this bus driver, a 51-year-old bus driver, would have taken his bus and driven it into this daycare, targeting a place where there were about, I mean, it, this is a daycare where there are 80 children from the ages of zero to five years old. And so that is the larger question that has really particularly shaken this community. I can tell you that earlier today, when you're arriving here and you hear from many people in the area that they heard this loud noise, some of the neighbors who rushed to the scene um, to try to help and what they saw and they described was a scene of horror. They're talking about the fact that they could hear children screaming and they could see parents in distress. And there were these three people that we know of, three men who tried to tackle the suspect to keep him on the scene until police arrived. And so at first there was this shock over the fact that there was this accident, this bus in this daycare, but then this other layer that it could possibly, and as I say, this has not been proven in court, but that this could possibly be something where this daycare may have been the target of this attack is something that has really sent shockwaves throughout this neighborhood for sure. And of course, it's larger than that. Oh, yeah, I think it's safe to say through the entire country. It's unimaginable. Thank you so much, Jean-Viev Beauchemin. Uh, in Laval, Quebec. I want to turn now to Christopher Skeet, the Quebec minister responsible for the Laval region. This is, in fact, his uh, his constituency, his riding. Mr. Skeet, uh, it's good to have you with us. I sure do wish it were under different circumstances. Thanks for making the time. Always a pleasure to uh, be on the show with you, Vashi, and thank you for your condolences. It's uh, well appreciated. Oh, my goodness. I, I think I, you know, I speak for every Canadian and a lot of moms and dads just horrifying, I think my colleague there described it as, uh, just watching this unfold today. Uh, my colleague Jean-Viev also delivered the news that, that they have just received word that this individual has been charged now with two counts of first-degree murder. Your reaction to that, Mr. Skeet? Yeah, I think, um, you know, shock, just shock, really, Vashi. I think when you look at, um, you know, this is, you know, when you're a parent, you send your kid to daycare, you go to work and you live about your life and never even occurs to you that something like this can happen. And I think uh, when you're hit in the face with a reality like this, that something like this can happen, I think it really hits home. I think it's important for all of us to take a moment today and hug our kids a little tighter tonight and, uh, and recognize how lucky we are uh, that our kids are not harmed. And also to spare a thought for those parents today who have uh, a dead child or a hurt child today. And I think it's just shocking, just shocking. Um, Jean-Viev was also saying there are, on any given day, 80 kids at that daycare. Have, have you been in communication with people in the community? I know, that, I know it's a community you represent. Have you um, had an opportunity to, to speak to them, uh, see how they're doing, and, and what can you convey to, to our audience about that? 
I mean, I see these kids all the time, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, right near there at the school where the crisis center is, there's a community garden. Um, I actively contribute, you know, uh, funds to help that, that garden grow. They teach kids about urban agriculture. I mean, chances are one of the kids from the daycare has been there. Um, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have my child in daycare anymore, so I don't have anybody in my family or in my entourage that, that went there personally, but these are kids that I cross all the time. I can throw a rock and hit that daycare from my office where I am right now. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's shocking, and I can't imagine the grief and the fear that occupied these parents when they, when they learned that their daycare was hit in this way. I, I, I just can't imagine. Just as someone who who is so familiar with the area, I, I think what you know the shock, the, the initial shock was just that this could happen. But then the second shock of see, seeing that it appears to be deliberate and based on the, the nature of the charges, that's certainly what police have have ascertained. Uh, how how much of a shock to you was that? I mean, where do I start? Right? I mean, you know, yeah. people have been asking me all day, you know, um, is there any word on the motive? And what I've been saying is, well, there's no word on the motive. But I mean, really, Vash, what can motivate something like this? There's nothing comprehensible that would ever motivate this kind of action. So, I mean, one day we may have a reason, uh, we may have a motive. I don't think it'll satisfy anybody because this is an absurd act and it shouldn't happen. And I mean, to target kids in this way, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, whatever the reason, it, it's just unacceptable. Are you involved or is the province involved in providing any or helping to coordinate any support efforts for the families who are affected both, you know, directly and, and somewhat indirectly through having a kid in the area? So I was just about to enter question period when we found out that this was happening. Uh, my colleague, the Minister of Public Safety, the Minister Responsible for Families, and myself hopped in our cars and drove on down. Uh, my colleague, the Minister Responsible for Families, immediately got on the phone and found new spots uh, in different daycares for the kids that were affected and the families that were affected. Uh, the Minister of Public Safety has been in contact with the, uh, the police to make sure that the investigation gets all the resources and help that it needs. We also locally, the health care authorities, um, quickly launched a crisis center right near the school to help affected families deal with their grief and any psychological issues that may arise from dealing with this awesome shock. Um, so, you know, just being here, I think, has really resonated with the community. But I, I haven't, you know, people have asked me, have you spoken to anybody? I, I don't want to be that guy who goes in people's right. face in a, mind, you know, in a moment of crisis. What I wanted to do is mostly send out the word that we're doing stuff. And if you need help, reach out. I'll be there. And uh, we're going to keep giving uh, police officers, uh, families and daycare workers and everybody in the community that's affected the resources they need to get through this. Okay, Mr. Skeet, I'll leave it there. I do appreciate you sharing some of your time this evening with us. Thank you. Thank you, Vashi. Until next time. You bet. The Christopher, uh, Christopher Skeet, the minister responsible for the Laval region. Uh, we will continue to follow any developments on this story, of course, and bring you to them as they happen throughout the evening. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a turn, though, after a commercial break. Next up, we're going to look at some of what was said by Joe Biden, U.S. President Joe Biden, last night during his State of the Union address. Lots of Buy American talk. What does it mean for Canada? Canada's ambassador to the U.S. To the US rather, Kirsten Hillman is here next. Don't go anywhere. Buy America has been the law since 1933. 
But for too long, past administrations, Democrat and Republican, have fought to get around it. Not anymore. Tonight, I'm announcing new standards require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. Made in America. I mean it. Lumber, glass, drywall, fiber optic cable. And on my watch, American roads, bridges, and American highways are going to be made with American products as well. I know I've been criticized for saying this, but I'm not changing my view. We're going to make sure the supply chain for America begins in America. The supply chain begins in America. Protecting the world's strongest economy, his own, at least that was the message from U.S. President Joe Biden in his State of the Union address last night. And as you heard there, it's one of the few things he talked about that is a popular message with voters from all parties. What does more protectionism, though, mean for this country, for Canada? Kirsten Hillman is Canada's ambassador to the U.S. Hi, Ambassador Hillman. Good to see you as always. Thanks for making the time. Uh, were you surprised to hear another Buy American announcement in last night's State of the Union address? So, uh, I guess the, the first thing to say is it's not a new announcement. What the President was doing, he was highlighting that they are now in the implementation phase of the Buy America uh, provisions that are in the uh, Infrastructure Act that was passed over a year ago. So those provisions haven't yet been implemented. The guidelines around implementing them are under development. So he was talking about that process, a process that, by the way, Canada is actively involved in as the U.S. considers how to do that and try, making sure, trying to make sure that they do so in a way that uh, is respectful and is um, good for Canada. And they so, so when you say Canada that, have you been provided projects. assurances then that whatever he was making reference to during that speech uh, does not apply to Canada? No, we're not in a position of achieving assurances at this point. I think that really what we're doing with the Americans is what, frankly, we've been doing. Buy American policies aren't new, right? They've been in this administration. They were in the last administration. They've been around for over a generation. And so we find ourselves, um, you know, perpetually, really, with the Americans when the policies come up, trying to explain to them that the objective behind their policy, which is to create good jobs in the United States, is, a, is, a, is obviously a very good objective for them, um, but that cutting Canada-U.S. supply chains, cutting us out of the process when we have these very deep and integrated business relationships actually isn't job creating, it's job cutting. So we, we do that, we've been doing that for, for many months now, um, and as I say, this public comment period is going to be coming out as these guidelines are, are put out for, um, for consultation, and we will continue that process with the Americans in a very detailed and technical way. How much, difficult, how much more difficult, from your perspective, is it to, I guess, see that explanation? And I know what the explanation is that, that's being provided, that this doesn't make it cheaper. It actually makes it more expensive to, to do the stuff that they want to do if they were to, for example, exclude Canada. How much harder is it to, you know, get resonance for that explanation or with that explanation, given the, the way in which you could see, even last night, it was so evident that there is cross-party, even extremes of either party, cross-party support for that, uh, the, the genesis of protectionism, the, the, I, the notion of buy America only? Yeah. 
I think that's a really I think that's a really important question, and I think it's really important for those of us like me and my team here, whose job it is to go in and find a way to protect and advance Canada's interests interests in the face of those policies to understand how deeply popular these policies are. And the reason that they're popular is because the, the notion that uh, this is for U.S. government contracts, that the U.S. is going to spend taxpayer money on buying goods that are made in the United States by Americans is a very compelling policy. And as it applies to any other country, you know, I, I really don't have anything to say on that. But what I can say is that when it comes to you know, our integrated economy where the vast majority of what the U.S. sells to Canada and what we sell to the United States are inputs into other products, we are able to make the case that that kind of policy objective that they're trying to achieve um, isn't achieved, uh, of creating jobs in the United States isn't, isn't achieved through cutting up and breaking down those well-established supply chains. I'm not saying it's an easy case to make. It's, it's, a, it's you know, we're constantly vigilant. We keep working on it all the time. Um, but we've had quite a bit of success to date in, in, since these policies have, you know, been popular, as I say, for, for over a generation. And I certainly wouldn't take away from some of those wins. But ultimately, if the case you were making were successful, would we be hearing the kind of stuff that we did in last night's speech? Or would you, for example, already have assurances that Canada was exempt from whatever it is that the president was referring to last night? Um, well, you know, I think that it's important to recognize that this is a speech where the president is, it's a political speech where the president is talking about his objectives in terms of domestic job creation in the United States. It isn't a speech that is targeted towards a Canadian audience or targeted towards a Canadian government interlocutor. It's a speech for, for his own citizens. And it is his policy to, you know, uh, as much as possible, bring jobs into the United States. We're just saying that that's not inconsistent with maintaining strong supply chains with Canada. So I think that we have to look at this speech in the context in which it's given and the purpose for which it's given. And I get that. It's, it's political. It's not necessarily policy driven. But the politics often do impact the policies that are pursued, right? The fact that this is so popular. I was looking at this Navigator research that measured the audience reaction. And collectively across party lines, when they measured it, it mm -hmm. spiked the highest during the parts when he was referring to Buy American. And I know we, we've heard from, for example, Canadian manufacturers and exporters today who are concerned about what it could mean, calling the promise bad news for Canadian manufacturing and asking for uh, a strong, quote, strong response to push back. I know that uh, you and the federal government and many provincial governments have employed this uh, kind of Team Canada approach, working back channels as much as possible and diplomatic means. Are you at a pause at all to consider being more public facing, more you know, bolder in your approach? Is there any reason to change your approach from where you sit? You know, that's a, that, those are questions that you kind of assess continually. So sometimes being public and and very uh, vocal and loud about an issue is the best way to move it forward. Sometimes having discussions behind the scenes is a better way to move it forward. You know, and we make those decisions based on the context here in the United States and, and what we are learning from everyone we're talking to. Um, we have made no secret of the fact that we believe that by American pro policies as they apply to Canada, 
um, any new policies or new application is detrimental to the, the binational relationship and is detrimental to U.S. jobs. We have a lot of supporters uh, in, you know, uh, on, in the, on the Hill, in Congress behind me, and even in the administration who understand the arguments we're making. But we need to, we need to make them. We need to continue to make them, and we need to, to show with concrete evidence why that is. And we also have to be willing to, to be firm uh, when that is the right moment. And I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no lack of firmness here. We are very clear that these policies don't make sense in the context of the Canada-U.S. economic relationship and frankly in the context of us right now wanting to make sure that our critical supply chains are resilient, that we are depending on our best allies to make sure that our economies are strong. Um, uh, we're making all of those arguments in private and in public. When is the moment to be firm, is it, and, and I'm not asking you to look into a crystal ball, but is it when you hear a speech like you did last night, or is it when, for example, those, uh, you know, the, the regulations come out and, and Canada is not exempt? Is it retaliation that, that makes a firm response? Well, I, I think there's, there's, there, there are quite a few steps in between those two moments that you, you've indicated. So there was, the, the law was passed. Um, the guidelines that apply to the law are now being developed. We have been in constant touch with the administration around that and with Canadian industry to get the information from them that we need to be able to demonstrate the effects of this law uh, and, the, and the guidelines that they're going to put in place. That is continuing and that is continuing in, in private discussions, but of course we will make public commentary during the public comment period. Um, and we will mobilize our allies on the Hill, right? It's not just the administration, but it's also our allies on the Hill who come from di jurisdictions here in the United States that rely on Canadian inputs so that their companies can bid on federal contracts. You know, those are, that's another whole group of individuals that we work with. So it is a sort of a, a variety of public and private conversations that probably lead to the best chances of, of results. I, I'm just out of time, Ambassador, but I wanted to ask you quickly before I let you go. Is this on the agenda when the president visits Canada? Yeah, yeah. our binational supply chains and making sure that we are working together is always, always on the agenda. But securing exemptions specifically from what he referred to last night, is that on the agenda? Well, I guess we'll have to see where we are by the time they get together, right? Okay. Uh, we'll have to see where this conversation is at by the time they get together. But the, pr the Prime Minister has often raised by American policies with the President, most recently in Mexico. Uh, so, yes, they, they talk about this fairly regularly. Okay, Ambassador, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your time. Okay, thank you. That was Kirsten Hillman, Canada's ambassador to the U.S. The front bench is here later this hour to dig into what she said about how Ottawa will respond to growing U.S. protectionism. With us this evening, Stephen McNeil, Gary Marr, Melanie Richet, and Laura Stone. That's coming up in a few minutes. After a quick break, though, we'll recap the top political stories of the day, including this moment between Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and King Charles III. The list is next. Stay right there. Welcome back to Power Play on this Wednesday evening. This is the list, a roundup of what's happening in politics today. 
First up, the Bank of Canada has just released its reasoning behind its most recent interest rate hike. According to the central bank, Canada's tight labor market and a hotter than expected economy pushed it to raise its key rate by 25 basis points at the end of January. This is the first time the central bank has made its deliberations public. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, meanwhile, is testifying before a parliamentary committee this hour to give the government's response to that committee's final report on Afghanistan. Last year, the Special House Committee on Afghanistan released a report that heavily criticized Ottawa's slow response to handling the Afghan refugee crisis. It also outlined a total of 37 recommendations on how to bring Afghans to Canada faster. We'll find out from the minister how many of those the government is prepared to accept. There are challenges at every turn. Um, the biggest challenge that I see is securing safe passage for people who are deep into the approval process uh, but can't access uh, a safe pathway to move throughout and outside of Afghanistan. Um, whatever the scale of the challenge is, we're not giving up on these people. We're going to do everything we can to provide a pathway to Canada. It's a commitment we've made to them. It's a commitment we intend to make good on. It's the third day of searching for survivors following Monday's devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. A search and rescue specialist from Pakistan crawled on his stomach to pluck this young boy from the rubble of a building. More than 12,000 people have died so far. We are also just learning that a Canadian military assessment team, according to the Canadian press, is on its way to Turkey. And I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine. Wings for freedom. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is in the UK pushing for fighter jets to help in its war with Russia. He made the plea before Parliament there, and it comes as Ukraine braces for an expected Russian offensive in the spring. While in the UK, Zelensky also met with King Charles III, as you can see there, at Buckingham Palace. This is the Ukrainian president's first visit to the UK since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly exactly one year ago. We're going to turn now to a major story in this country, the latest on those health care funding talks between the federal government and the provinces and territories. The prime minister's 10-year offer put new money on the table, just not nearly as much as the premiers wanted. And up on Parliament Hill today, that is sharply in focus. And I know uh, that an awful lot of premiers are very eager uh, to roll up their sleeves and get to work the with majority? us on delivering. I think all premiers have indicated that they feel that this is a path forward. There was a big step made uh, yesterday. And now we need to talk about the way by which those dollars will bring results to patients and workers in Canada. We regret that the Prime Minister broke the federal bank and wasted so much money that he now cannot come to the table and help relieve the suffering in our emergency rooms. As it stands, there's no guarantee in terms of staffing levels or our path to increasing healthcare workers. That, to me, I've always said would be the major test. And so far, the government has failed on that point. So here's a reminder of exactly what the Prime Minister is offering premiers. $46.2 billion in new money over 10 years. Far from, of course, the $28 billion a year collectively the premiers were calling for. A 5% uh, increase to the Canada health transfer for the next five years. That accounts for about $17 billion of the $46 billion new, mo uh, new money. rather. And there is an immediate unconditional $2 billion top-up 
to the health transfer to help out with some of the issues in ERs and with kids in ERs. Bilateral talks between the feds and the provinces are already actually set to get underway. Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos and Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc will meet with Ontario's Premier Doug Ford tomorrow, and he's signaling he could be ready to sign on the dotted line pretty soon. We're grateful um, for, for the offer. We're grateful for sitting down with a Prime Minister, uh, but we want sustainability. We need certainty uh, moving forward, not just for a few years, five or ten years, but decades to come. And I'm, I'm confident we'll work collaboratively together uh, with, with the federal government, and uh, I look forward to getting the deal done. All right, so where does all of this go from here? Let's bring in the front bench panel to weigh in on that. Former Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil is here tonight. He's now a strategic business advisor for the law firm Cox & Palmer in Halifax. Former Alberta MLA and Cabinet Minister, Health Minister, in fact, Gary Mara is here. He's the president and CEO of the Canada West Foundation. Former communications director to Jagmeet Singh, Melanie Richet, is with us. She now works at Earnscliff Strategies and the Globe and Mail's Queen's Park uh, reporter Laura Stone is with us as well. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you. Uh, Gary, Hibachi. we've been weighing in on some of your uh, your expertise because you were at those 2004 talks. You were around the table with Paul Martin, for example, and, and all the premiers back then, the last time a big deal was struck. Uh, were you surprised at the amount of money on the table last night, or did you think it was in line with what the feds had signaled? No, I, I thought it was quite not in line with what the federal government had signaled. Um, you know, the Prime Minister had made a big deal about transformative uh, health care. Uh, eerily, uh, the current deal seems a lot like uh, uh, what happened in 2004. Uh, in 2004, it was about the 40 some billion dollars, I think $42 billion uh, to be offered up over uh, uh, 10 years. Uh, this one's $46 billion over 10 years. A lot of premiers have expressed disappointment uh, over the amount, and they'll say it's helpful but it's not transformative in the amount that's being offered up. And so, Stephen, where do things go from here? I mean, if you were still premier, do you, it just doesn't sound like the, the, the prime minister is like, well, you know, let's negotiate some more. Like, they seem to indicate really this is take it or leave it. Well, I, I think your opening question led into this whole conversation, which is this seems very much like 2004, where, <clears throat> and even the dollar amounts are very similar. It was $42 billion. Uh, this one is $46 billion, I think. Uh, the top up of $2 billion on the front end is positive. The, the rider of 5% is a positive one. Uh, but whether if we do not change the delivery model, we'll be back at this in, in less than 20 years. Uh, the fact of the matter is the way we deliver health care has to change. Uh, the way people want to practice in health care has to change. I think missed opportunity here, and we may see it in the bilats, is how do we transform the delivery model in health care? Uh, you know, if you go back to the 2004 model, you know, we saw some changes in wait times, but they very quickly evaporated because this, we just kept pouring money into the old system. And I'm afraid that unless we change the delivery model, we'll be back at this. Uh, and there, in my view, there's a missed opportunity in the sense of I think Canadians are looking for a leadership on how do we deliver primary care? Uh, how do Canadians access primary care in a timely way? Uh, and what does uh, the healthcare system delivery model look like for the next uh, 50 years. And I'm afraid uh, pouring more money into the same system uh, is going to give us the same outcomes, uh, which means we'll be back at this in a very short order. 
It is really interesting that Stephen says that, Melanie, because um, that's the feeling you got, right? Like it's, it is a big sum of money, but it is similar to 2004. The structure of it on, on the whole seems also similar. The difference may come, and I think both Gary and Stephen mentioned this in the bilateral deals. Mm-hmm. Is there an opportunity there, do you think, to address some of the stuff that might help us avoid the, the pitfalls of the last two decades. I, I surely hope so. And I think Canadians watching at home are also hoping so. Um, the amount that we saw this week um, is definitely not the transformational amount that we were, we were being told is coming. Um, for folks who are already waiting hours in the ER, uh, waiting to see a doctor or waiting to see help, I don't see how this changes um, with the amount that's on the table. Um, the e, uh, not the ER, sorry, the HR uh, component as it relates to nurses, as it relates to uh, frontline healthcare workers. I don't know how that gets improved with this amount. Um, and folks who are waiting those long uh, times in the ER, um, I think are a little bit worried uh, about this amount that's on the table. Hopefully, like you've mentioned, with the bilateral deals, we see um, direct funding that goes to address that uh, so that folks have a little bit of respite as it relates to um the HR or the, the nurses, the, the frontline healthcare workers um, who are currently saying we're burnt out, we don't have enough capacity, um, have been screaming, kind of help us uh, to be able to run uh, the hospitals as it is. Uh, Laura, let's talk about the politics of this for a second because uh, the premier you cover, Ontario's premier Doug Ford, is going to meet with Dominic LeBlanc and uh, Jean-Luc Duclos uh, tomorrow on this. He, he does not seem reticent, I think, in my view, to sign on the dotted line. What, what is your view of what might transpire tomorrow? Well, I think you saw in that clip a, a, a very subdued Doug Ford, probably a bit, bit different than what we we used to be seeing over the past few years. And, and he really goes up and down kind of depending on the issue of the day. I think it's interesting when you compare this to the daycare deals, for instance, where Ontario was the last to sign on. Now they seem keen to be the first to sign this deal. And I think that really is um, you know evidence of the fact that they don't view this as an issue that the public wants them to fight. Uh, the feds on. Of course, they're all talking about uh, wanting and needing more money, and that's going to be a common refrain. But you can even see the message turning from Premier Ford there. He's not talking about more money. He's talking about substantial long-term funding and how how they ensure that, you know, that this goes beyond even the decade that the federal government is promising. Um, I don't think there will be a, a deal exactly signed tomorrow. That's what kind of officials and senior officials are telling me uh, from the Ford government. But they're they're saying, you know, expect it within within weeks. I don't think that they want to drag this out any longer. And and Premier Ford has been uh, very public about that. They have to go over the details of this bilateral deal that they're negotiating. But, um, you know, some of the the comments from premiers such as uh, Quebec Premier Francois Legault or, um, you know, even those in Alberta and Saskatchewan who are much more disappointed in in the federal government's offer you're not seeing um that same refrain being echoed from ontario so i do think they are a a lot more keen to to get on with the deal and get on with the bilateral deal and see this money start to actually flow into the system one thing that i did find very different from 2004 gary and you can speak to this more than i can though is that i remember the famous stories that i know you were involved in of you know late night pizza up for 24 hours haggling to arrive at something uh, you know, between the parties, this was not really a negotiation. This was, okay, we'll finally meet to you and present you with an offer that you can take or leave. I think that was really what was signaled by uh, Premier Stephenson of Manitoba when, you know, she had said, look, I, I can't comment on uh, what the Prime Minister is going to put before us because I haven't seen anything. Uh, it, it did appear that Premier Ford had a little bit more foreshadowing of 
uh, what would be put yes. on the table. But um, it, it surprises me that the, the, the federal government's uh, sort of gone down this road because there were so many issues that both the provinces and the federal government uh, really had you know, common agreement on. They both wanted timely access to primary care. Both wanted to deal with the issue of uh, human resources in the health system. Both wanted reduced wait times for surgeries, uh, emergency room throughput. Um, so there were so many areas that uh, uh, that there was a sort of a common agreement on. And, and don't forget, the premiers have been asking for this for the last two years. Um, and so I, I think that they do come away um, really um, sort of disappointed with what was put on the table. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Premiers uh, Legault, who, who of course was a former health minister, and uh, people like uh, Premier Ford uh, continue uh, to advocate for really transformative change. Maybe there's an opportunity for that to be done by the provinces and not by the federal government. Right. I just have 30 seconds left, Stephen, but I just wanted to quickly ask you if you were surprised at the nature of kind of the lack of negotiation versus just presenting a, an offer. Uh, no, uh, I'll tell you, because they're seeing both sides seem to be flexible, quite honestly. Uh, the provinces were uh, bound and determined they were going to have no conditions. They just wanted the money uh, without any conditions put on it. We've seen that show before. Governments uh, spend the money uh, not necessarily on what it's meant for. So the prime, the prime minister was determined that it was going to end up going into health care on the things that matter to them. So uh, I think it came down to the mood of Canadians is now get a deal done. I think Premier Ford uh, is probably better than anyone else understanding what the electorate wants and probably why you're seeing it in his response. He knows Canadians are fed up. Uh, the $2 billion may not sound like a lot to those of us who are health ministers or premiers, but it sounds like a lot of money to Canadians. Uh, but the next step will determine, I think, the success of this. Can you transform the delivery model? Because without it, uh, we're back at this very quickly. Okay, I'm going to take a quick commercial break. The front bench is sticking around. On the other end of that break, we're going to talk about what U.S. President Joe Biden said in the State of the Union address last night, that big push for more Buy American policies and what it means for this country. Stay right there. More Power Play just ahead. Welcome back to Power Play. U.S. President Joe Biden, in his State of the Union address last evening, made it clear Buy American policies aren't going anywhere. In fact, he pledged to ensure that major construction projects, major infrastructure projects in the U.S. are made with just American products. Let's talk a little bit with the front bench about what that potentially could mean for Canada. Stephen McNeil, Gary Marr, Melanie Richet, and Laura Stone are all with me this evening. Uh, Laura, I'll start with you. I, I know the that the ambassador said, like, Hey, it's a it's a new song, but one we've heard before. How exhausting do you think it is for Canadian <laughs> officials to keep having to go uh, uh, around and around on this merry-go-round? Well, it's like deja vu all over again, and I'm sure that Canadian officials um, have some some confidence in, in themselves because they figure, you know, look, we've wrestled this alligator before in Donald Trump, but that was supposed to be kind of the big hill to climb, and now to have to do, deal with it again. Of course, as the ambassador noted, it's it's not a new principle for the U.S. This is a, a, something we've obviously been hearing for decades uh, from them. But this Inflation Reduction Act will have real world impacts on Canada. And I think you heard from the finance minister, the deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, last week, um, you know, a, a bit of concern over this. And 
um, kind of cataloging the fact that the Liberals will have to spend on initiatives in order to compete with this. I think she was also kind of laying the stage for why the federal government was not going to spend as much on the health care front as the premiers had wanted. But I think certainly there must be some uh, right. concern here. And, you know, you did hear from the ambassador her talking about this message that has been repeated over and over about the supply chain and the importance of Canada. Uh, but certainly Canada is not top priority here when you hear these these words from uh, President yeah. Joe Biden in, in a room of lawmakers. And, and Melanie, the, the IRA is one thing and, and Buy American is, is, is another thing, right? Like another layer. I, I found what I found so interesting, and I put this to the ambassador, too, is the degree to which all parts of the room last night erupted into mm. applause, right? Even mm. our traditional allies, when it comes to the notion of free trade or even mm. the relationship between, like everybody was clapping when Joe Biden said what he said. Mm -hmm. and, and we heard the minister today say, well, you know, for 30 of those states, um, we're the biggest trade partner. And that didn't really seem reflected in the room yesterday. Um, what I think folks are seeing is every time something like this happens, our government is more reaction instead of being proactive. And when you ask the the ambassador earlier, if she had gotten any assurances. She didn't say no, but it kind of sounded like a no. So for folks watching- None at, yet, she said. Yeah, yeah. So, so for folks watching at home, I, I feel like, especially workers are, are looking at this and saying, well, how is this going to impact me? Here we are again. Why do we seem to be left out of the conversation instead of always part of the conversation? Now I'm sure um, the government is working on, on something and is part of those conversations, but we're hearing labor leaders say, don't assume um, that we're in the tent. Uh, and, and I really hope that what we see from the government uh, in the next little bit is that we don't see that assumption, but they are actually actively working to, to make sure that Canada is exempt from, from those policies. Gary, I think if I'm not wrong, you were Alberta's representative in the U.S. for four years, 2007 to 2011. Do you feel like the political calculus has changed given the anti-trade rhetoric that has permeated through both Donald Trump's administration and now Joe Biden's? I wouldn't say that things have changed a lot, actually. I mean, Buy America is not new. Uh, you know, both uh, presidential candidates in 2016 campaigned on some version of, uh, of Buy America. And, you know, I, I, uh, I think it was really signaled uh, in last year's uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill that this was really going to uh, be continued on. Now, so overall, uh, if you were a Canadian listening, you'd have to say yesterday was a bad day. But note that the State of the Union address is really geared not to Canadian audiences. It's geared to American voters. Right. And I think that's a really important point to make because um, there is still room to for Canada to influence, you know, how the regulations are written and how they're, um, you know, how they're passed. Um, you know, I, I worked uh, at the time when we were trying to get Keystone XL Pipeline um, approved. And it was approved by everybody except for the President of the United States. And we worked recall, hard yes. with the unions. <laughs> yeah, we worked hard with the unions. And there are binational unions. And I think that, you know, those unions will be very, very important in helping do the, uh, the backroom work in making sure that you, you won't get a blanket waiver for Canadians, uh, but you might get... Uh, you know, appropriate waivers in, in certain cases uh, uh, that, that help out uh, Canadian providers of, uh, of, uh, of goods. And, and uh, th that's going to have to be the playbook this time around as well. Um, and I think that um, I'm certain that the, uh, the people at the Canadian Embassy are working with the unions that are there, as, you know, as Ambassador Gary Dewar did uh, those many years ago. Uh, Stephen, last word to you on this. 
Well, I agree with Gary. This, this was a political speech uh, to, to the Americans. The president was speaking uh, to his voters. Uh, I'm sure if the prime minister gets up and says, by Canadian, uh, everyone would agree with that. The reality of it is our economies <laughs> are in it, whether it's uh, on the energy market, a great amount of gypsum leaves this country every year to go build uh, rocks for or cheap rocks for the construction industry in the United States. The list goes on. What Canadians need to figure out and what the federal government will need to figure out is how much is this political rhetoric in the United States meeting to their base and how much they intend to act on. Uh, and then on, on the flip side of that, look at how do we take advantage of that. We have many minerals here that uh, will be required. He spoke a lot about the automotive industry last night in the chip sector. Mm-hmm. How do we get those minerals out of the ground in a hurry? How do we uh, make sure that uh, our economy is able to take advantage of which is our largest trading partner and, quite frankly, one that we need healthy I think the thing that we should all worry about more than anything was the decorum last night. Uh, I watched a lot of these before. Uh, there's been a lot of back and forth. Typically, the president of the United States, regardless of the party, gets a level of respect right. when they're doing the State of the, State of the Union. Last night, uh, for me, for a Canadian, uh, we need we need a healthy United States. We need a healthy uh, economy. We need someone that's respected around the world. Uh, and last night, uh, show... Uh, uh, the behavior in the House actually was more demoralizing to me as a Canadian than anything that the president said. Yeah, there were some jaw-dropping moments, that's for sure. I have to leave the discussion there. Thanks very much, everyone, for being with us this evening. Laura Stone, Melanie Riche, uh, Gary Marr, and Stephen McNeil. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll return to our top story, of course, after that break, though, the deadly bus crash at a Quebec daycare. More details coming up. Stay with us. Before we go tonight, some reflections on the tragedy that unfolded this morning in Laval, Quebec, where a 51-year-old man drove a bus into a daycare, killing two young children. Here's the uh, provincial MNA who represents the area, Christopher Skeed. Shock. Just shock, really, Vashi. I think when you look at, um, you know, this is, you know, when you're a parent, you send your kid to daycare. You go to work and you live about your life. It never even occurs to you that something like this can happen. And I think... Uh, when you're hit in the face with a reality like this, that something like this can happen, I think it really hits home. That's Christopher Skeet. He's the provincial politician who represents the area that uh, the daycare is in. And just to update you on the charges that that 51-year-old man faces, there's a total of nine of them, including two counts of first-degree murder, as well as attempted murder, aggravated assault, and assault causing bodily harm. Once again, he did, uh, in driving that bus into the daycare, kill two children. Six others are injured. We will, of course, be staying on top of this story throughout the evening and bring you any new details as they become available to us. That does it for us tonight here at Power Play. I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez.